0: G'day, I'm Andy Wood and this is The Local Update, a podcast looking at local issues, events and personalities from around the Bega Valley. And on this week's episode, well, as the weather starts to warm, you might start to notice the return of the local fruit bat colony. The grey-headed fruit bats, or flying foxes as they're known, uh, will return to the Glebe Park Lagoon as it starts to warm up. So in preparation for the arrival of the bats, I thought I'd play for you a chat that I had with local resident Hugh Pitty. Hugh is the convener of the Friends of the Glebe Park Lagoon and does a whole lot of work with the bats. I'll play you that chat coming up. And as we do each week, we'll also catch up with local historian Graham Farum. This week, Graham's talking about Mr. Harris, a man who moved from newspaper printing to production and sale of ice. I got looking at Thomas Sutcliffe
1: Mort and that took me into The Dictionary of Famous Australians by Anne Atkinson. It's an Allen and Unwin publication, 1992. It's a little bit um, convoluted but we'll we'll find our way through this. On, On page 109, There's a gentleman called James Harrison. He was born in 1815 and he lived till 1893. He was a newspaper owner, inventor and refrigeration pioneer. Born in Scotland, Harrison trained as a printer in Glasgow and arrived in Sydney in 1837. He worked as a printer and newspaper editor in Sydney and Melbourne and by 1842 owned the weekly Geelong Advertiser... In 1852, he began experimenting with ice-making, putting to use his observation that his printing press cooled very rapidly when it was washed down with ether. By 1857, his factory at Geelong was producing three tonnes of ice per day. In 1859, uh, 1859, he set up a large-scale factory in Melbourne... However, the public preferred imported natural ice to Harrison's artificial ice and the enterprise was a commercial failure. Harrison returned to the newspaper business as editor of The Age. At the 1873 Melbourne Exhibition, he won a gold medal for a consignment of foodstuffs which remained frozen for 97 days and was financed to ship 25 tonnes of frozen beef to London. Due to a series of mishaps, the meat spoiled in transit and Harrison was bankrupted. Harrison's ideas were later perfected by his former associate, Eugène Nicole. So we're going to have a look at him now, page 189. Nicole, Eugène, Dominique, 1823 to 1901. Engineer who pioneered refrigeration techniques. Born in France, Eugene Nicol studied engineering there and in England before migrating to Australia in 1853. In 1861, he patented ice-making machinery which used liquefied ammonia gas and installed the apparatus at the Sydney Ice Company where he was manager and part owner. In 1866, he went into partnership with Thomas Mort. Over the next 10 years, they patented refrigeration machinery suitable for a ship's hold and built cold storage houses in Sydney and Lithgow. Mort's company, the New South Wales Fresh Food and Ice Company, planned a bulk shipment overseas of frozen beef in 1877. However, a defect in the machinery prevented the consignment from leaving Sydney and the coal ship refrigeration system was never used commercially. Nevertheless, it was largely due to his pioneering efforts and the success of his shore-based cold storage facilities that the first successful shipment of frozen meat reached England aboard the Strathleven in 1879. People used to think that if you froze something and then defrosted it, and it'd immediately go off. So the, the idea of you know, being able to be a long life thing, and you could send things all the way to the other side of the world. Very good. So Thomas Sutcliffe Mort. This is pages 181 and 2, stu- still in um, the Dictionary of Famous Australians. 1816 to 1878. So he didn't live to be a very old man. Merchant shipbuilder and wool broker who pioneered the use of freezing for meat exports born in england mort came to new south wales in 1838 and by 1843 had established an auction and brokerage business morton co became the colony's main wool selling agency his other interests included mining shipping railways and dairy farming in 1855, he began shipbuilding at docks at Balmain in Sydney and later expanded to the construction of locomotives at the plant. In 1872, this enterprise was floated as a company, Mort's Dock and Engineering Company. Mort's interest was aroused by Eugene Nichols' experiments with ice-making equipment and by his proposal to refrigerate the hold of a ship with liquefied ammonia gas. Maud provided the funds for an experimental plant, and in 1873, commercial freezing works were set up at Sydney and Lithgow. Now, he was out at Lithgow so that he could get the cattle, didn't have to bring them over the mountains into Sydney, kill them, and okay. In 1857, Maud established the New South Wales Fresh Food and Ice Company and made plans for a consignment of frozen beef on the Northam in 1877. Here we go again. Owing to a fault in the equipment, the project failed. And Mort died before the first consignment of frozen meat was finally shipped from Australia in 1879, so the very next year. His company was later amalgamated with the wool brokers R. Goldsborough & Company as Goldsborough Mort & Co. Although not listed in the index of Bailey's history of Bega, or, or given a biography in there, Mort is referenced a number of times in the body of the text. He's first noticed on page 20, part 3, Bega under the Twofold Bay Pastoral Association, 1852 to 1860, under the heading Camaruka. At this time, negotiations were being carried on by William and James Walker for the sale of their runs. Now, the, those fellows were um, bankers from Hobart, and they'd been financing the Imlays, but droughts and fires and one thing and another set the Imlays out. Walk, walker's carried on for a while. So they, they're negotiating for the sale of that um, in 1852 they were taken over by James Eade and William Manning, Thomas Sutcliffe Mort, Edward and Robert Lucas Tooth, and John Croft, who formed the Twofold Bay Pastoral Association, holding 40,000 acres on which sheep were to pasture during the succeeding 10 years. So there's 400,000 sheep around here. On page 21. The association's land monopoly, however, was not allowed to pass unchallenged. A correspondent from Grieg's flat writing to the Sydney Empire on November 3, 1853, said At Warrigaburra and Bigger, a large extent of beautiful country is expected to be surveyed and sold in a very short time. Bigger is situated about 25 miles from Marumbula, with two Rs the latter being in seaport, and whether for its fertility of its soil, its thinly timbered flats or plentiful supply of watercourses is unexcelled in this part of the colony. That's a newspaper clipping in the Mitchell Library. There are interesting mentions of shipping interests on page 24 because overland travel was so difficult all of these people could afford it had their own boats and it ultimately became the Illawarra and South Coast Steam Navigation Company with these people involved and that meant that they had power a different kind of power over the commercial world as well page 32 part 4 vega under free selection 1861 to 1883 Influx of settlers. By 1861, the population of Bega had grown to 625 with 100 households. The previous year, the Twofold Bay Pastoral Association d- dissolved. Maud purchased Bedalla in 1856. In 1861, Sir John Robertson's Free Selection Act was passed. The former Twofold Bay Pastoral Association partners at first attempted by dummying to hold 11,000 acres and had an agent at Eden attempting to quash free selection. They failed in their purpose. Interestingly, page 20, under the heading Churches, in 1864, Thomas Sutcliffe Mort donated 59 acres of land for a Glebe, and Church of England rectory on the outskirts of town, just over there on the eastern side, in fact. And it's still called the Glebe over there. Um, page 35, Communication and Transport. Surveyor John Heady, in 1866, marked out a road from Bedalla Post Office to Browley Street, Bega. That's over on the north side. The Bega-Bedalla Road was opened in September 1868, Also in 1868, on page 33, Matthew Munn, assisted by now Sir William Manning and T.S. Mort, built a mazena mill at Marimbula, and still got two Rs. This was a stone building three storeys high. The factory had a capacity of seven to eight tonnes weekly, and Munn's mazena was well known to all householders in the state in its time. It won a prize in the Philadelphia show in 1879. We've actually got an original packet from the Munns factory out in a cabinet out there, and it's got the gold medal on it, like they do with edi- anything that wins a gold medal. Um, it won a prize in the Philadelphia show in 1879. That probably wasn't such a good idea in the long run because the Americans took him to court. They reckon they owned the name Mazina. And one thing and another, it all snowballed and the enterprise failed. But it went on for quite a while, quite a while. Um, If you travel back in time now to the year T.S. bought Purchase Badala, Bailey notes on page 24 that Wyatt, in his History of the Diocese of Goulburn, records on page 208 that in 1856, Bishop Barker, visited Bega himself. He went by boat to Twofold Bay. After visits to Pambula, Bombala and the Delegate Golddees, he reached Bega. Bailey, on page 26, records, when in 1856, Bishop Barker wished to journey from Bega to Patali, Badali, Badala, he took with him an Aboriginal guide. Everybody would know um, the... the Magnificent stone church at Bedalla built by Mort for his people there who tried, like Lucas Tooth, to set up a community, uh, ultimately, farm. Um, I looked up Gleed in my concise Oxford dictionary. It's a noun. One portion of land going with a clergyman's benefice. Two, poetical, earth, land, a field. It comes through the Middle English from the Latin glaber, clod, soil. In Aboriginal place names and their meanings, read, 1888, Badala, now, uh, in New South Wales. A number of interpretations have been given for this name. One being that it comes from Bodau, to toss a child up and down in the arms, isn't that lovely? Other meanings have been given such as several waters, you run hard and haven for boats. At one time the place was popularly known as Boat Alley, one of the amusing corruptions of an Aboriginal word. Okay, we come back into um, more modern times now, and I'm back to the um, Dictionary of Famous Australians, and I'm still on refrigeration. Uh, page 104 Halstrom, with two L's, Sir Edward John Lees, 1886 to 1970, director of a pioneer refrigeration company, and benefactor of Taronga Park Zoo, Sydney. Born in Coonamble, New South Wales, Holström left school at an early age and went to Sydney where he worked in a furniture factory. As a young man, he set up his own plant to make ice chests and cabinets for refrigerators. He was also interested in the development of aviation and flew with George Taylor in his first Non-powered flights in Sydney in 1909. I don't know much about George Taylor, but I guess in the history of aviation, you'd be able to look him up somewhere. Um, And it was non-powered, but uh, yeah, anyway. In in 1923, Holstrom moved into making actual refrigeration (laughs) units His first model, completed in about 1924, was based on a heat exchange system installed in an ice chest. Now, we've actually got that kind of device. We had a look at it earlier this morning just to make sure it's sitting there in uh, what used to be the veranda, now closed in room on the eastern side of the building. He's... um, His work in producing increasingly sophisticated models made him a leader in the development of refrigeration in Australia. Having taken out a patent, he was able to take advantage of the great increase in refrigeration sales after World War II, and his business boomed, with many Australian homes boasting one of his silent night refrigerators. I remember seeing one of those when I was at art school out in Wagga. You know, it's nice and flat out there. we drive around and just have a look and came to a, a, a derelict house Well, the silent night was still standing there, still looking pretty good. That was back in um, the early 70s. Howstrom was a generous benefactor of medical research and in other areas, most notably Taronga Park Zoo in Sydney where he had been a regular visitor since childhood. When I was a child, I used to go too. He donated many animals and birds and was chairman of the Toronga Park Trust from 1947 to 1959 when he was made honorary life director. He was knighted in 1952. I couldn't help but go back to um, Aboriginal place names and their meanings.
0: Kanamble
1: in New South Wales,
0: from good ample, plenty of dirt, bullock, dung. Graham Farram is a member of Bega's Historical Society and the Bega Pioneers Museum and my regular guest here on The Local Update. Every week I invite Graham to look at the issues, events and personalities from the region that have made Bega the community that it is today. listening to The Local Update, a podcast looking at local issues, events and personalities from around the Beega Valley. You can find all the info you need about The Local Update at indymedia.com.au. You can also subscribe to The Local Update as a podcast from your favourite podcast provider. And don't forget, you can now catch us on Sunday mornings between 11am and midday on 93.7 Edge FM Community Radio in the Beega Valley. Over the last 20 years, we've seen a population of grey-headed fruit bats, or flying foxes, make the trees in the Glebe Park Lagoon home for about six months of the year. Sometimes numbering in their thousands, the bats arrive in November and stick around till about May. Over that whole period, a local resident from across the road, Hugh Pitty, has had a strong interest in the bats and their habits.
2: Hi, my name's Hugh Pitty and I'm the community coordinator with the Friends of Glebe Wetlands here in Bega.
0: I feel like you're interest in these wetlands, at least in part, came from an interest in what was going on with the bats to begin with, hey?
2: That's right, yeah. I've been here for over 20 years and um, the flying foxes uh, arrived using this as a roost about the same time as I moved in. Since then I've uh, studied ecology and my animal habitat study was all about the uh, flying foxes here at the lagoon, so that's
0: when I got, got more interested. do you think changed? What was it that made these bats suddenly decide that this was a good spot?
2: I think there are uh, things about this location which are um, good for flying foxes as a a roost the uh, permanent water body um, means that they've got water to to, um, drink Um, but also the way it's situated the um, uh, heat of the hottest days in summer um, is moderated by the nor-east. summer nor'easter blowing across the l- lagoon into the main trees where they hang out at the head of the lagoon which is on the southwest corner so that, that uh, I think uh, at the critical time of heat stress is, is something that helps them but also at the end of their uh, season when uh, the days getting a bit cooler Um, the morning sun bounces in off the water up into the the trees and I think that also uh, uh, is a
0: beneficial microclimate. One of the things that you guys do during the season is counting or estimates of numbers. What kind of numbers are you seeing? So um, the numbers uh, vary uh, up and down. In a a
2: usual year they might get up around 20,000 or so. at the peak of the breeding camp. The, the camp will usually uh, form in October, November, um, in the spring and build up for the breeding uh, camp around the uh, late January, February uh, is when it peaks and then tail off into April, uh, May. That's usually the first frost there heading north for um, warmer places for the winter. There was a, a season back in 2014 when we had um, a big flowering of spotted gum in the late autumn through the winter, and so our biggest numbers were actually in June, and they stayed right through the uh, winter, Um, and so we had continuous counting uh, then, but usually it's about a uh, seven-month period that they're here, Um, and the numbers overall are they have, they fluctuate from year to year, depending on uh, what's happening in the environment, because the flying foxes are really following the flowering of of natives, and so you know there are some years when the numbers have only got uh, like last year up around the the five thousand, and uh, that was we had uh, first drought and then the bushfires and that's, yeah, pretty uh, much
0: hammered the flying fox populations. So I gather that in following food, they're, they're migrating. How, how far have you heard of them travelling? So we've had some uh, recent research uh,
2: published in August, um, uh, a really great paper uh, that has confirmed uh things that were theorized and and sort of partly known but now much uh uh, more substantially known it's it's called extreme mobility of the world's largest flying mammals creates key challenges for management and conservation and this is by justin welberg and and, uh, a bunch of other uh, scientists Um, and uh, what they did was over a five-year period they uh, tracked uh, um, over 200 flying foxes with radio tracking uh, via satellite. And 109 of those were the grey-headed flying foxes that we have here at the uh, um, Glebe Wetlands in Bega. And so we've been able to see that the distance that they travel um, is uh, really large through their uh, year... Uh, one individual travelled over 12,000 kilometres and, you know, the average is well over 2,000 a a year. Uh, They're flying up to 50 kilometres a night uh, just to do the nightly forage. But, yeah, this article has some beautiful little videos attached to it uh, with the radio tracking signal registering uh, every few days. And you can see them, the signals zipping up and down all through the uh, range. And you know, they might fly 400 kilometres in a flight. Uh, So they're they're really very mobile. And I think the best analogy is to think of them as like backpackers who are moving around for harvesting different uh, flowering plants and and fruits as they're. available in different areas so it's really one population in many locations. So acting a bit like bees on a much broader scale then hey? That's right yeah if you think about uh, bees as uh, pollinators primary pollinators uh, one third of our food crops are uh, pollinated by the honeybee apis mellifera um, and uh, flying foxes really do a, a very similar thing but on a bigger scale. So flying those greater distances, it's our, the health of our forests that the flying foxes uh, look after through the ecological services of pollination and seed dispersal.
0: So does the, the health of our forests, the health of their um, you know, feeding grounds and breeding grounds, the impact on that, is that why we might see them suddenly having an interest in our food in our backyards? Um, Yeah, if we're
2: having lots of clearing of uh, forest foraging habitat, then uh, the availability of food for flying foxes is reduced and they're more likely to be coming uh, chasing the uh, one-off fruit uh, meal in a a house uh, orchard, you know.
0: So how do you, I mean, you live across the road, how do you deal with that? What do you do to protect so that you get some food out of your yard?
2: Yeah, so a, um different things you can do. I mean, you, vegetables are fine, um, the flying foxes are up in the air in the trees, so you, know, you ground uh, crops are, are are fine. There is a cherry plum tree uh, growing from the, in the paddock just over our fence, and Uh, the flying foxes come and hammer that every year but they're only little ones so we don't really uh eat them um and like that probably acts as a bit of a uh decoy for the smaller fruit trees that we 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 do have
0: these bats are despite hearing of numbers of kind of twenty they they're also um an endangered threatened species aren't they so i imagine that that traveling into our backyards as part of the reason that they become threatened they, they get trapped somehow or oh they can do they can get trapped
2: in netting uh, it's important if you're using netting on your uh, fruit trees to make sure that it's uh, not just loose over the fruit tree but stretched tight over a, a frame or a structure um and uh, the color is important. It's, it's white rather than g- green, and the flying foxes are more able to be able to see it. Um, and the type of netting uh, to avoid the thin nylon microfilament netting, and uh, it's better to have uh, a woven shade cloth type material, uh, and it's that's heavier. Um, and uh, then. I think the other thing is to consider that if we do less clearing of uh, forest, then the, we're taking much better care of the uh, flying fox's primary foraging habitat. And that's the uh, thing that can be done on uh, uh, a bigger scale. And even restoring forest on broad acres is a, a, another thing where. Uh, people can be planting, uh, if they're doing uh, revegetation works, including species that the flying foxes uh, forage, l- lots of eucalypts and um, the uh,
0: banksias and malalukas as well. Tell me what the uh, Friends of the Glebe Park Lagoon group are up to. Do you work to try and, I don't know, provide plants are going to be good food for the bats or what are you up to
2: yeah so we we have several activities and the main two are our monthly flying fox counts which when the flying foxes are here during season uh, on the third friday uh, of each month Um, and we just do a a count that feeds the data into the national flying fox monitoring program uh, run by the CSIRO uh, but our other activity is the monthly working bee on the uh, first Saturday of each month. Uh, so we've got one coming up uh, uh, tomorrow, uh, yeah, the um, 3rd of October from 9.30. And this uh, is an activity that we've been doing for the last few years since we got a small uh, grant, community environment grant, from the Bega Valley Shire Council um, to do what we call the Habitat Enhancement Project. So for the flying foxes and the water birds, the other wildlife here at the Glebe Wetlands, we've been gradually, very gradually, removing uh, non-native species like uh, privet and um, honeysuckle, uh, blackberry, uh, those kinds of things, and making way for replanting natives that uh, uh, enhance the habitat for uh, the flying foxes and the wildlife, so we've been planting Uh, casuarina uh, trees as the uh, long-term roosting trees uh, because mostly the flying foxes are roosting in uh, willows that were planted um, back in the 1980s when some uh, works were done here to create the uh, lagoon as a a permanent water body so we're uh, growing the uh, river oaks casuarinas as a succession species, there, but also uh, other natives like water gums, understory uh, trees, um, lily pillies, uh, sandpaper figs, that kind of thing, uh, as well as uh, flowering trees and shrubs in the uh,
0: buffer around that uh, some eucalypts, red gums, yeah. okay. blue box. I was interested to hear you a moment ago talk about feeding the data regarding bats into the CSIRO database. Uh, have you seen anything that gives you an in- indication of how this population and the impact on the population and stuff compares to other p- ne- other resting places that they...
2: So um, the National Flying Fox Monitoring Program run by the CSIRO, um, we, we've been uh, collecting data here for the last eight years now which is about as long as that's been running Um, and uh, one of the things that we've been very strong on is doing monthly counting because across New South Wales the statewide count is only done quarterly Um, and so yeah it gives us a bit more precision in knowing what's happening with the the Uh, fluctuations in numbers from uh, month-to-month through the season. I think the uh, general thing is when we have larger numbers here at the Glebe Wetlands in Bega, so do the other camps in our area Uh, like at Pambula down in in Pambula. Um, The summer before last we had very large numbers down there. Uh, with around 85,000 and uh, that was a a bigger year here as well whereas last year with the fires, much fewer. It's like that thing with the whole population doing the seasonal migration. North in the winter and south uh, in the summer so they'll be as far north as... Uh, gimpy up in Queensland and all around northern New South Wales with where the population will mainly be through the cooler months, but in the warmer months, like when the breeding colony is on here, they'll be uh, down the south coast uh, through Victoria and even all the way around to Adelaide um, in South Australia. So that's the sort of migratory range. Um, having said that, though, there are some places where particularly in the cities, there's permanent food. As there's such a diversity of planted uh, uh, food trees that the flying foxes camps can be permanent. Their numbers will fluctuate um, in line with that seasonal migration, but there will always be some in like, Centennial Park in Sydney. Um, other places in uh, Brisbane, Melbourne, Adelaide all have permanent flying fox
0: camps now. Hugh Pitty is the convener of the Friends of the Glebe Park Lagoon. The bat colony is expected to arrive in Glebe Park Lagoon in the end of October and should stick around until roughly May. During the bat season, Friends of the Glebe Park Lagoon run bat counting surveys on the third Saturday of every month. And the Glebe Park Lagoon committee also runs maintenance working bees on the first Saturday of every month through the year. listening to The Local Update, a podcast looking at local issues, events and personalities from around the Bega Valley. This podcast produced by Indie Media and all info about the podcast available at indymedia.com.au. You can also subscribe to the podcast using your favourite podcast provider and you can find the program live on 93.7 Edge FM every Sunday morning between 11am and midday here in the Bega Valley. Indie Media recognises the Yuan people as the traditional owners of the land from which we broadcast. And pays respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. A huge thank you to Graham Farron for his regular contribution to the program, and also to Hugh Pitty for joining us on this week's program. Thanks for listening to the local update. I'll catch you again next week. Bye now.